Well, when people are desperate, they'll often do desperate kinds of things, uh, whether it's they're not thinking straight or they've tried the normal means of help or, and nothing's come for that. Uh, so they turn to anyone who promises the world, anyone who promises that they'll be able to help. And very often they don't get what they hope for or plan for. Either it's a far, far worse outcome or there are dramatic and unforeseen consequences Uh, On the lighter side of things, it's Mother's Day and if you only just realised that when you got here today, maybe you're desperate enough to follow this piece of advice. Woolworths is open today. (laughs) They do have an amazing floral range (coughs) and Cadbury milk chocolate. It's a risk, but if you're desperate, you might take that opportunity although you may still end up sleeping on the couch. Anyway, so (laughs) on a more serious note, though, you might think of someone whose uh, partner is very, very sick or maybe their child is very, very sick. Uh, You might have been in that situation yourself. I know we have families in our church in that situation. There's almost nothing you wouldn't do to make things better if you could. Uh, And some people go to desperate lengths for their child or someone in their family. They remortgage the house. They'll head overseas for specialist care if the Australian healthcare system can't deal with it. Or even if they're really, really desperate, they'll turn to Indonesian faith healers or obscure Tibetan medicines because just maybe there's some hope there. Everything else has failed. And, and we've, because someone told them about someone else who was told by someone else who'd read Women's Day or Dolly or saw it on Facebook that they were healed over there. Desperate people do desperate things. Well, something similar to that happens in our passage today. In fact, there are whole crowds of desperate people who are flocking to Jesus to have him heal them. But I want to focus on uh, just one man amongst them, a man whose body uh, is broken and he has no other way of getting better. But instead of ending up destitute because of a snake oil salesman, The man at the centre of the event ends up with a freedom he could never have imagined, far better than he'd hoped, and it all turns on the question of who Jesus is. A freedom he could never have imagined, all turning on the question of who Jesus is. And what's at stake in this passage is a fundamental question that we all need to answer in our lives, and that is, who is it that can forgive sins? Who can forgive our sins? Who can do that? But let's just set the scene as we transport ourselves back to first century Palestine, to a small fishing town uh, by the sea. Uh, That's what Capernaum was like, a small fishing village on the sea. It was up north in the region of Galilee, kind of like Israel's equivalent of Queensland, uh, and the southerners thought of the Galileans in much the same way as we think of the Queenslanders. They're the weird country bumpkins, have some odd views on stuff, they talk slow, and they really couldn't pick the north end of a southbound camel from its head. Uh, but that's where Jesus launched his public ministry that's where he got going and he started off with this preaching campaign that we were looking at last week he was an evangelist and that term has a bad rap these days he wasn't a tele-evangelist he was a faggot he was an evangelist he was going around with a message moving around preaching this message a four-point sermon uh, that we know from chapter 1 verse 15 the four points the time has been fulfilled The kingdom of God is at hand, repent, believe the good news. 
The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is hand. Repent, believe the good news. That was his message as we saw last week. But as a result of that, and we've just read about it in uh, that long reading, all kinds of strange stuff started to happen. Very, very strange things happened around him. Uh, he demands of some people that they follow him. Uh, just, just leave their jobs on the spot, leave their family and come with him wherever he's going. Uh, and they do. They just drop everything. Uh, what would you do if your teenager uh, came home, a young adult maybe, and said to you, a man came by preaching about God. He told me to quit my job and follow him. I don't know where he's going, but I'm leaving everything and I'm going. See you later, mum. See you later, dad. Hope the family business works out. Uh, what you know? What what do you think Zebedee thought of all this when his kids just racked off his fishing crew? And it's not just a personal magnetism. The crowds are awed by Jesus' teaching. Uh, you see that in verse twenty-two of chapter one. They were astonished at his authority because he taught as one who had authority, and not as the teachers of the law. Uh, and not just the people. Uh, we're impressed. Verse 27, what is this? A new teaching and one with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. So Jesus didn't speak like the scribes and rabbis of the day who preached the same then as they do now, uh, always hedging their bets. Oh, Rabbi so-and-so says this, but Rabbi so-and-so says that, but then in the Talmud it says this, and so uh, who knows what the truth is. Jesus did none of that. He said, this is the truth. No footnotes, no reference to any other authority. He just said, what is? And the people listened and they were, they were awestruck by his teaching. But even stranger again was the way he exercised what appeared to be supernatural powers. He commanded the demons and they obey. They come out. Then he heals Simon's mother-in-law who's sick with a fever. With just a word, the sickness is gone. And she's healed instantly, healed completely. And, and, and that sets off a scene where everyone in town goes wild for Jesus. Uh, remember what happened, verse 32? That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all of the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. That's also a strange thing. All these, these demons know exactly who he is. They keep saying, you're the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And he won't let them speak. Surely he'd want a bit of publicity. Why does he keep them all silent? Even the leper at the end, he says, I've healed you. Don't tell anyone about this. What does the guy down do? Oh, look what Jesus did to me. Ah, it's so exciting. So that even by the end of the chapter, what does it say there? Jesus could no longer go out publicly in town and so he went out to the lonely places and even there the people came and found him and they mobbed him. And so there it is, his, his popularity, there's crowds pressing around. It's not really that surprising, is it? I mean, of course that kind of news is going to spread quickly. I mean, if this morning I waved my hand over you all and everyone here who had any kind of ailment, uh, who's taken medication today already? Yeah, you sick lot. <laughs> or has glasses because your eyes aren't the best, right? Uh, Kevin Lowcock at uh, 8 o'clock on crutches because he cracked his hip a couple of weeks ago and he's also got bad knees. 
Imagine if I just waved my hands and everyone with any kind of complaint, anyone who's on antidepressants, didn't need them anymore, anyone on heart medication, just is gone because they were completely healed. What, what would happen? You turn up to church next week, do you reckon you'd get a seat in here? They'd be packing in. The news is going to spread. They'd be lining up down Cumberland Road. I might even have to go into hiding, uh, which is hard when you live just next door. But anyway, <laughs> you need to know that if you're coming this afternoon. But anyway, uh, it's astonishing. But then, stranger again is the way that they won't, he won't let them speak about it. Uh, and so he's out in the lonely places. When he comes into town, he's mobbed. The people are trying to chase him around. And we get to chapter 2, and, and this man whose body is broken, he's paralysed, presumably from the waist down, maybe he's paralysed from the shoulders down, we don't know, but it's been for years. And he's so desperate to get to Jesus, who he's heard about, but there's no way that he's getting through those kinds of crowds. They're just He's mobbed everywhere he goes, and a, a paralysed man can't walk, he's on his stretcher, he can't get to Jesus. Now, I don't know if you could imagine being in the house that day in Capernaum, uh, the crowds spilling out the door, the people eager to hear what this amazing Jesus guy has to say. I mean, I presume some are just curious, wondering what all the fuss is about. Um, some are probably hanging on every word that comes out of his lips. There's others there who are probably doubters and sceptics looking for the tricks behind the magic. But either way, it's packed and there's jostling, there's dust and heat and a tremendous energy in the air and Jesus is standing in the midst, he's preaching his four-point sermon from verse 15 and, and suddenly there's a noise, there's a disturbance. What is it? What's going on? Verse 3 of chapter 2, some men came bringing to him a paralytic, a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof and after digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Now imagine being one of those four men, you see them there, they're, they're struggling with their friend on the stretcher, they, they probably got near the fringe of the crowd and you know, at the back, oh, excuse me, can we get through, come on, can we, and stuff, and couldn't get through there, couldn't get through over there, maybe they made a few more attempts, but there was no way they were getting into the house. Can you imagine the discussion? Oh, do you reckon if we come back tomorrow? What, yeah, is this going to happen again? What, how are we going to get in there? And one of them, some dopey guy, says, what if we go through the roof? <laughs> and they go, you're an idiot. And someone says, oh, no, no, hang on. Maybe that'll work. Actually, why don't we give it a go? Let's destroy this guy's house, whoever it is. <laughs> so they pick up the stretcher. They move around to the side of the house to this outside stairway that leads up onto a flat top roof, which is... Uh, a common way they had houses in those days because they would hang up there washing or sit in the afternoon sea breeze. And so after much shoving and pushing and getting a bed with a man on it up the stairs, um, they, they've got him up, so they work out where Jesus is preaching in this house below uh, and they, they set to work. They catch their breath uh, and then they do this amazing thing. They tear a hole in the roof. Now that's no mean feat. I mean, that you think, oh, it's pretty easy. You just take the tiles off and, you know, the, the uh, plasterboard ceilings, that's not going to be very hard. They didn't have that. You know, they had great big timbers laid across the walls every two or three feet apart. Okay, and this far apart, there is a giant timber. You've got to get a bed through here. And then on top of that, they put the, the bigger branches 
uh, and then on top of that, twigs and stuff like that, and thorns and thistles, and then packed on top of that is a foot of mud, stamped down, hard packed. It's got to be an entertaining area. It's got to hold up your friends in the afternoon sea breeze. They don't have skylights. They don't have tiles. They've just got this three-foot-thick roof on the house, and they decide, let's go through that. I mean, imagine being in the crowded room, listening to Jesus, when all of a sudden you see this fine dust in the air, maybe some bits of mud start coming down your head, you know, what's going on here? And bits of ceiling start crumbling, you hear the grunting and construction kind of curses, as, you know, they dug away and then they tore the branches away and then pried the beams apart. Uh, and you're looking up and first you see a finger poking through and then some hands and then there's four faces looking down. That's the situation. They've, they've got to make a bed-sized hole in the roof. It's no good making a hole just this big because if you lower a man on a mat, feet first, what's going to happen? Whoop! <laughs> Slippery dick action. That <laughs> stuff. They've got to lower all these ropes exactly the same time. Um, and, and if we were there in that room, we might have thought, what is the heck is going Is it vandalism? If it was happening today, we might think terrorism. Is someone going to drop a grenade in this room? We might have thought some very bad things, especially if we owned the house. I mean, who's going to pay for these repairs? But for a moment, I just want to concentrate on those four friends. You've got you to say, these guys loved him, didn't they? They really loved him. They wouldn't be put off by the crowd. They abused someone's property to get him in there. They put up with the protests and the judgments of the people around, all for the sake of their friend. They truly loved him. These are faithful, faithful friends. And whatever happened that day, whether it be healing or rejection, I want to say that paralysed guy was a very rich man, even if nothing happened when he got to the bottom. Because he had something that people will spend millions of dollars on today and cannot buy. People truly loved him. And God was going to work in his life because of the love of his devoted friends. Now, their remarkable love is paired by something I think that's even more remarkable, and that is their faith. They weren't just faithful friends to him, they were faith-filled friends. There's no way they would have gone to these outrageous measures if they did not implicitly believe that Jesus could and would heal their friend. They truly believed that Jesus was the answer to the problem. And it wasn't a vague passing faith like so many imagined faith or belief is today. It wasn't a vague belief that God exists somewhere and that's nice, isn't it? It wasn't a limp-wristed ascent that, uh, you know, to a half-remembered creed. It was nothing like that. It was persistent. And they staked their reputations and the life of their friend on this man, Jesus. When they got him on the stretcher, there was no stopping them. When they came to an obstacle, they didn't say, well, the door's closed. Obviously not God's will for him. (laughs) They didn't form a committee. They just got to work. They so passionately believed that they had to get him to Jesus. There was no other help they could get. We have to get him down there. And I want to say, if you're here today at church because your friends or your family today, because it's Mother's Day, invited you, maybe they even pestered you to be here today. I want you to know you're a very lucky person. They love you and they're people of action. 
And you should listen to them carefully when they want to introduce you to Jesus because they really do care about you. And they really do think you need to know Jesus, that he's the solution to your problems too. So that's the friends. There's also the detractors, the critics. And I, when all said and done, I want to suggest the real paralytics in the room that day were the ultra-religious leaders who were there. They're described for us as teachers of the law. Uh, that's referring to the Old Testament law, the religious law. Uh, it's not like lawyers today. Uh, and Mark, the author, contrasts these teachers of the law with the stretcher bearers and all their activity. Because what does Mark tell us that these religious leaders are all doing? Through all this commotion, they're just sitting there. They're just sitting there. When the man came through the roof, they should have been the first ones up in order to lend a hand and and help bring this man down. Uh, But instead of love, they're indifferent. Instead of faith, they criticise and condemn, as we'll see. But something happens that really triggers them off, that really upsets them, and that is that Jesus speaks. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, that is, the faith of the man's four friends, he said to the paralysed man's son, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, Jesus saw things very, very clearly, far more clearly than we do. And in this charged moment with the crowds watching what's going to happen, the, the dust is still settling, the paralyzed man, Jesus decides it's time to make a point. And it's truly shocking, the point he makes. Uh, it would have been like a bolt of lightning had just gone off in the room. Uh, when Jesus said this, you know, my son, your sins are forgiven. And I think it's shocking for two reasons. Shocking for two reasons. First, because saying, my son, your sins are forgiven, just seems so irrelevant. Here is a wretched man who has been stuck on his stretcher for who knows how many years. His friends have ripped a hole in someone else's roof. They're desperately hoping for a cure. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven? Yeah, thanks a lot, Jesus. (laughs) You can imagine people sitting there thinking the same thing. Uh, Jesus, uh, it's not his sins. Uh, Lower. It's it's his legs. His legs need healing. (laughs) Uh, But Jesus never indulges in irrelevancies. As Jesus looked at the man, he saw many needs. He saw his shriveled legs his muscles would have atrophied he saw a man who perhaps felt a burden to other people every minute of every day someone who was a prisoner in his own body he saw other problems too maybe he's depressed about it but through it all jesus penetrated down to his greatest need the forgiveness of his sins and when jesus went beyond the man's surface problems to his greatest need. In fact, he addressed the greatest need of every person in the room that day. In fact, the greatest need of every person in every room, in every part of the world, in every age. The greatest need of every person sitting in this room today. Because Jesus puts his fingers on the spiritual pulse of each and every one of us. In chapter 7, we'll come to in a few weeks' time, we're going to hear Jesus say that inside every one of us, is a heart that by nature is dark towards God. 
We push the maker and ruler of the universe to one side. We don't care. We, we either deliberately or inadvertently. We, and, and what we need, we desperately need someone who can deal with our hearts, someone who can deal with our sins, someone who can sort things out between us and God because we can't sort it out ourselves. We can't, we can't deal with the problem. And Jesus knows that's our deepest need. I take it that's why Jesus kept moving on from the crowds in chapter 1 who come for healing. You know, they're flocking to him and he says, no, we've got to get out of here. I'm not here to heal people. I've got to go around and preach, the, preach this news. I've got to go and preach about the kingdom and repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's the good news. It wasn't that he didn't care about the sick people. He cared greatly. It's just he really cared enough to deal with their greatest problem. And so it is here. Jesus could easily have cured this man of paralysis and maybe given him good health for, what, another 20, 30 years, alleviating some decades of misery. But when Jesus forgave the man's sins, he delivered him not only from his sins in this life, but he delivered him from an eternity apart from God. He delivered him from hell itself. And I I need to be reminded of that. We all do because it's something we keep forgetting and ignoring. Because you think about your needs and your problems, they're probably not this. You know, the day-to-day problems and issues occupy our minds instead. You know, I don't know what you're facing at the moment. Your distracts you, the pressure of work, the mortgage. Maybe that's bearing down on you as it does many in our area. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your family. Uh, maybe today's brought up some really hard things for you and your family. Maybe it's your singleness or the fights that you're having at home or at work or the project that's overdue, maybe for the boss or maybe, you know, whatever Alison's been telling me to do for the last mm, two years. <laughs> they're, they're problems. But none of them are your greatest problem. None of them are your greatest need. Your greatest need is the forgiveness of your sins. And, and that may shock you. Jesus intended to shock. But what Jesus says is shocking for a second reason. And that's because of what he's saying about himself. And the religious folk there, they, they understand exactly where Jesus is going with this. Exactly what Jesus meant. Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves... Uh, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The teachers of the law, they knew their Bibles and and they were, in a word, horrified. Jesus was making the appalling, blasphemous claim that he was God. God on earth. Now, how do they get to that? Is that? Are they right? It's actually pretty straightforward because according to the Bible, sin is essentially and always against God first and foremost. The, the things that we do to each other, the lies that we tell, the bitternesses we hold in our hearts, the envies, the lust, the unforgiveness, our, our betrayals, our selfishness, uh, our they all stem from our hearts not being right with God. Israel's king David understood that. And you can see that in the Old Testament reading that we had from Psalm 51. 
which, which he wrote after he'd done some very, very nasty things and he'd been busted for it. Uh, pure evil. First thing he'd done is commit adultery with a married woman. That's a happy reading for Mother's Day, isn't it? <laughs> uh, a woman named Bathsheba. Spotted her, was pervert on her, had it off with her, then got her pregnant. <laughs> her husband, Uriah, he thought, I'm in trouble now, so he brought him home and tried to manipulate him, lied to him. Then when he won't swallow the lies, he had her husband killed. David did terrible things. He knows it. And yet he cried out to God when he wrote this song. Listen to it. Really interesting when that's, that's what he's writing about. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And get this. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What does he mean, against God only have I sinned? Hasn't he sinned against Bathsheba? Hasn't he sinned against Uriah? Hasn't he sinned against his whole nation by letting them down? But here's the truth of the matter, and David understood it. When it comes down to the, all sins, whether they're against others or things that are just in our heads and in our hearts, uh, are ultimately against God. And that's because everything is God's. Everyone is God's. And so you damage people, you're, you're, it's against God. You go against God's ways, it's, it's against him, even if it's, you're not actively thinking about it. And when we do evil, it all stems out of our rejection of him because we want to be God. And so it's his right alone to forgive sins. And Jesus knows that full well. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they know it. Jesus knows it full well. This wasn't a slip up. Jesus, as he speaks to the powers man, was in fact claiming to be God on earth. And, and such colossal blasphemy in Israel, it deserved death. And so the teachers are absolutely shocked. And Jesus knows that too. He knows what's going on in their hearts and their heads. Verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit this is what they were thinking in their hearts, that he was a blasphemer, had to die. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Did he not know? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat, and go home? Now I know for myself which would be easier to say, and I suspect you do too. There's entire research communities set up with millions of dollars to solve the problems of paralysis, uh, especially paraplegia and quadriplegia with precious little to show. No one can cure it. So it's far easier to say, oh, your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Because God's the only one who knows whether they're forgiven or not. And God's the only one who can do it, sure, but, you know, you can just say it and just whack it out there and, and, and who knows? But if they were shocked before, well, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And he got up, picked up his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never 
We have never seen anything like this. So just think everything that had to happen. As Jesus spoke those words, the man's bones straightened out. His, uh, they assumed their normal density. His tendons flexed and stretched. His atrophied muscles filled out. The sagging skin went taut. And all of that happened. And once he'd rolled off his bed and stood up in that dusty shaft of light coming from this big hole in the roof, he picked up his mat, put it over his shoulder and strolled out through the crowd, the very same crowd that wouldn't let him in to start with. Wanted to him off. And I imagine he went and started high-fiving and jumping around with his four friends that are carrying on like New South Wales had won the state of origin. <laughs> For Jesus, it was an easy thing to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. That, that was nothing to him. He'd been doing that all this time. That's why the crowds were there. All it demanded was a couple of words, the slightest bit of effort, a smidgen of the power that he had used to bring the creation, the universe into being. He just spoke and all of that happened. The hard thing was for him to say, my son, your sins are forgiven. And not just because it would bring condemnation from these guys sitting here, but because, and, and I, I think this is the most important thing I'm going to say today, it was the hardest thing because saying that meant he would have to go to his death on the cross. When it comes to sin, somebody has to pay. In the, it's the case with every crime. Somebody pays every time. Whether it's the perpetrator of the crime or someone who's framed for it or the victim, they may have to pay for the crime. Maybe it's society in the form of victim compensation. Somebody always pays. And when it comes to paying for sin, it's either going to be you and me and the cost is our lives or it's going to be Jesus. God just can't forgive and forget sin. God's attitude is not, ah, it doesn't matter, whatever. It matters a lot. It matters everything. There's got to be justice. David's sin couldn't just go unpunished. Ah, bad luck for Uriah. Bad luck for Bathsheba. <laughs> Whatever, you know. The paralyzed man's sin just couldn't go unpunished. Neither can my sin or your sin just go unpunished. But again, God's attitude at the same time is not forgiveness is earned because there's no way we could pay except with our lives in eternity in hell. And so what he dociously does to win us forgiveness is to pay the cost himself. Jesus pays. God pays. God on earth dies. And so you think forward to the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of Jesus' life. We were going to read it later in Mark. It was so horrific a thing that Jesus knew he was about to do that we read he was deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's, it's, that's how much it hurt him. And going a little further, he, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. I, if there's any other, I don't want to do it. Yeah, it's too much to bear. 
Yet he prays, not what I will, but what you will. If there's any other way, Father, let's, let's do it that way. If, if I could just do 10 push-ups and it would forgive sins, can, can I get, can I do that? But this is the true faith of Jesus. If there is no other way, then Jesus says, I'm going to go where you lead. I'll do whatever it takes. And when the time came less than 24 hours later, he did it by dying the lowest death humanly possible. He died on a cross as a criminal, rejected by everyone, rejected by the people he had created. In retrospect, the Apostle Paul says in just 15 words in the original language, God who made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, if we're in him, we might become the very righteousness of God. We might be cleansed, completely forgiven, right with our heavenly Father. And so in the greatest act of substitution that has ever happened, Jesus, who was sinless through his 33 years, took all that was due for our sin upon himself. On those three dark hours on Good Friday, his heart and his body were crushed with the weight of what was due. He became a curse for us. In full consciousness, he took on your sins and my sins with a unity of understanding and pain that none can fathom. And he did it willingly so that he could say, my son, your sins are forgiven. My daughter, your sins are forgiven. And I, and I want us to keep that in mind. I want to hold it in our hearts, this fact that Jesus did the hardest thing that has ever been done in time and eternity for you and for me, the hardest thing, to forgive our sins. His death just shows how committed he is to you. And, and you can see it in the joy of the man as he went home rejoicing. He carried something even more impressive than his bed on his shoulder. He was clean. The greatest miracle of all. He's, he had no guilt. It was gone. Jesus had taken it away. No bitterness no tension, only release and forgiveness, the greatest gift. And I want to ask, has he ever said to you, my son, your sins are forgiven? Has he ever said to you, my daughter, your sins are forgiven? You, my son, your sins are forgiven. Has he ever said that to you? What is it you think you need most in life? What, what is it that you are most desperate for? How are you going to go home today? May you leave here with Jesus having said to you, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Let me pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you've brought us here this day. Thank you for Mother's Day. Thank you for the women in our lives. We pray that you bless them and watch over them. Help us to care for them and love them. But we thank you you brought us here this day to reflect on these deepest of things, this deepest issue of all of who can forgive us. And we know it's only you through Jesus. We thank you he was prepared to die for us to bring about that forgiveness. We thank you that he has paid the debt. He has taken what we owe. And we can never say thank you enough. Thank you so much. Dear Father, grant to each of us 
here today that we may understand our deepest need and go away from here having that need met, to go away from this place with your voice ringing in our ears and our hearts saying, my son, your sins are forgiven, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful and glorious, powerful name. Amen.